I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Paul Farmer, the co-founder of Partners in Health, an organization that provides health care to the world's poorest communities. Paul has essentially created public health care systems in developing countries, providing free drugs to patients who have AIDS or multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. He spent his career trying to get policymakers and the general public to understand the link between poverty and disease, which he calls the twin epidemics. Welcome. Thank you, Jessica, for having me. Could you please describe what Partners in Health is? Well, first of all, I think that's a great description, so thank you. Legally, and I, f- I feel self-conscious saying legally, uh, it's a public charity. We're based in the United States in one sense, the headquarters here, but really what we do is build sister organizations uh, wherever we work. Mm-hmm. And uh, our biggest uh, projects are in, in Haiti. And even though people know more perhaps about some of our work with tuberculosis or AIDS, as you, as you just said, um, we're really interested in, in poverty reduction and in basic rights, um, not just the right to health care, which is hard enough, but the right to clean water, the right to primary education, and uh, other basic entitlements. So I guess if I had to say what, what I think Partners in Health is, it would almost be some sort of human rights organization that focuses on the needs of families living in poverty. And of course, sickness is a huge part of that. How did you come to the decision to devote your life to providing health care in developing countries? Where did that come from? I made that decision in Haiti uh, when I was 23 years old. And, uh, of course, I had to get to Haiti, so I must have had reasons to do that. And, and the reasons I gave myself back when I was in college was that I, ha- I had met Haitians in uh, the migrant farm worker stream. So these are seasonal laborers who are you know, pushed out of their country by poverty and political violence and end up in our country, in my country, um, doing uh, menial labor, um, harvesting crops from Florida, all the way to upstate New York. I just got very interested in, in what they were doing uh, and the conditions under which they labored and started having some conversations that I just, you know, still to this day, I feel like I'm having the same conversation. You know, why, why would you leave Haiti to come here and work under these conditions? Now, how did you come into contact with them initially? Well, initially, uh, I, when I was a kid in Florida. So I'm not sure, you know, when you're a kid, you, you make these connections that may or may not prove salient later in life. But as a student in college, I really got interested. And you went to Duke? I went to Duke. With this interest in mind, what did you do after graduation? When I graduated from Duke, I got this this prize, which uh, was for, um, of all things, it was about Haitian artists. And uh, it was $1,000, and I thought, well, you know, I've read the books about Haiti. They say that uh, the per capita income is about 300-something, so I thought, oh, I could make that do for a year, (laughs) and off I went. How did you make your way ultimately to Conj, which was the place that Partners in Health really was born initially? Um, I made a contact in a town in central Haiti with a, a Haitian priest named Fritz Lafontaine. He was living in this town but going, do, doing mission work. And he was very focused on, again, these basic social uh, rights, schools particularly. And uh, I thought, well, if I go with him, maybe I could work on the health care part of it. And from my understanding, Conj is one of the poorest parts of, of Haiti, which, I mean, Haiti itself is pretty poor, but Conj is even a multitude above that. Can you describe what it looked like when you were there well, for the it first was, time? Uh, sure, I'll give it a try. It was, um, it was a squatter settlement. I think that if you look at really for poverty in the poor world, the most difficult um, 
places are the urban slums and probably squatter settlements where landless peasants go. And peasant sounds like a strange word, although it's a word that the Haitians used to describe themselves. These people, uh, who later founded Conj, had fled a hydroelectric dam project. And their valley, where they, they lived for many generations, was flooded. And so they just went up into the hills. And Conj was one of those small squatter settlements where people didn't, didn't own the land and they were living in ramshackle huts. And so it was very, uh, it looked like it had just been thrown up hastily. Uh, that the houses were, you know, made out of twigs and they had dirt floors, and um, it was a very dispirited place back then. And uh, it looks very different now, but that's what it looked like in in 1983 to me. Very dusty and dry, also. One sign of poverty is tin roofs that people have on their houses, but the Conge inhabitants didn't even have tin roofs. They didn't have that luxury. They had twig roofs. That's right. They had thatch roofs, and uh, and they spoke a lot about this. You know, I had this association in my mind of tin roofs and poverty, and then I found out, well, there's something a lot worse than that. Dirt floors, really mud floors, because it rains there, you know, half the year or a good part of the year. So it was a, it was a real mess. How emotionally tied were you to Conj after living among these people for a few months? Was it the type of feeling where you said, okay, I'm going to stick with them and then just go back to med school in Boston and go on with my life? Or was there some sort of visceral connection to these people? Well, it felt visceral. It still feels visceral to me. Now that I, I, you know, I work as, as much in Africa this past year, I've been in Rwanda, uh, I've been in Rwanda a lot more than I, I was in Haiti this past year, but that's still home for me. There's a book about you by Tracy Kidder called Mountains Beyond Mountains, and one of the sort of the visual uh, takeaways I had was the U.S. government actually um, being complicit in this dam project. They might have had benign incentives, who knows, but the results were pure squalor. And these inhabitants just one day saw the water rising and had to take their most precious belongings and run into the mountains. And that gives you an example of the sort of urgency behind their homelessness. Well, you know, the first time I heard them say that that's what happened, I I thought they were taking poetic license. You know, I thought, well, surely they didn't leave the day the water rose. I mean, there's this giant buttress dam being built, you know, 10 kilometers away. Surely they knew it was coming. But when I heard the same story again and again, I, I realized they weren't exaggerating. They really didn't understand what was happening. And, uh, and so they, they didn't have time to erect you know, new houses or, um, or to move properly. And that's really what happened. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Paul Farmer, co-founder of Partners in Health, an organization that provides health care to the world's poorest populations. Paul started Partners in Health in Haiti in his 20s while he was still a Harvard Medical School student. Partners in Health operates in Haiti, Peru, Rwanda, and Russia. You spent a couple of years surveying the conditions of these people, going house to house, before building your first clinic in 1985. How did you go about building that first health clinic? Well, first 95? we had to look for, for money, and there was a connection, a church connection uh, that the priest had, and, and uh, all of us also sought money. And I was lucky because I met in Boston, when I, actually when I came for my Harvard Medical School inter- interview, I made a connection that later led me to meet Tom White, who is a Boston businessman, and uh, he gave an anonymous donation to a charity in Boston, which he designated for Haiti. So... Some $5,000 came to us back in 1983, maybe early 1984, 
and uh, and we built a bread oven, which proved to be a mistake, by the way. Talking about entrepreneurship, <laughs> wasn't a good idea. But anyway, it sounded good at the time. And then I came back to Harvard and uh, wrote an essay about this experience. And he read the essay. Uh, the The director of the charity to which he'd contributed uh, sent him the uh, the magazine, and he read it. And he said, "I'd, I'd like to." to meet this guy, Paul Farmer, and the first time I met him was in Port-au-Prince at the airport. But I think you missed an interesting point, which is you said to the organization, if he wants to meet me, he has to come to Haiti. That sounds kind of sassy now. He's been so generous. (laughs) So what gave you that moxie or that gall almost to say, okay, if this potential funder wants to meet me, he has to come to Haiti? Yeah, I look back on that and think that was, uh, it was it proved to be a good strategy, but I'm I think it was a little bit too much moxie actually, and uh, but it worked out great because that's where we met, and uh, we have been friends and coworkers ever since actually. And I say coworkers, you know, some people would say, well, you were a medical student, and he was a Boston developer, you know, and so he's your funder, but actually that's not the case. He was really one of the founders of Partners in Health and a funder. What do you do uh, to open up a healthcare clinic? You got the locals to help build a one-room building, or uh, walk me through that. So it was uh, it was building a team locally. It was a lot of young people, Haitians, uh, people about my age, um, and it was recruiting some medical staff in Haiti. It was keeping our our supporters engaged and letting them know this was going to be a long-term project, and. Then it was uh, designing this clinic, which I, I, in my view, we designed very poorly. And we really had to take it down because, and redo it because when we built it, we didn't think ahead about the flow and the traffic. You know, we, it should have been obvious that in a country that poor and that sick, where there are not other clinics available to really poor people, that we'd be overwhelmed. And so you really had to, we should have given more thought to how to lay it out. You know, we, we saw thousands of patients in the first year in 1985. Uh, maybe even tens of thousands. But last year, across our networks in Haiti, which is not just Conj now, but seven different towns, uh, we had 1.2 million patient exchanges. So, and as you, you were kind enough to say, it's really a public health system. So, you know, that takes thought. I spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time trying to think how will the patients move through the system? You know, and actually drawing arrows on pieces of paper and, and say that, you know, trying to, to plan their trajectory so it's not a mess, you know, not a traffic jam. And that's how it was in 1985. It was just a, a traffic jam. And so for years, we grew and grew. And then in 1993, we put in a, a hospital facility right there in Conj. Was there any problem with your credibility? Or were these people so desperate, they just came to the clinic because they had no other choice? Well, the, I, the, no, we didn't have a big credibility problem early on. We really didn't. Uh, and part of it was due to the great need. The other part I would like to think was due to the fact that we really took our time to find out what people needed. We we're actually going to their homes and saying, you know, what is it that you need? What are your problems? Some of it's so obvious, you know, if you're hungry, you need food. And if your children are unvaccinated, you need vaccines. And if you're injured, you need a, a physician who can stitch you up. Getting uh, really rooted in that. Uh, in those communities, it's because it was always many communities. I think that was uh, one of the reasons we had credibility. And sometimes part of the cure is just having somebody to be able to talk to. The fact that you were able to listen to these people was medicinal in a way. I'd like to think so, yeah. And, you know, speaking their language, that helps a lot. 
there are stories of you walking for four hours on foot, going to one patient's home to make sure that he was taking his medication. Is that is that true? That's true. Yeah, it's not true just of me. It's true. Uh, we try to inculcate that value in all of our uh, doctors and nurses. And there's no tradition of that in the United States or in Haiti or in Rwanda or in Peru. Uh, and so pushing that as a model, saying, you know, we really need to do this, even if it doesn't seem like the best use of your time, getting to know, you know, the way people live and getting to know their families and seeing their problems firsthand in their homes, in their communities, is a good thing. We've stuck with that over the years. When you're walking, did you ever think, like, what am I doing? Oh, walking? yeah, I still think that. You know, I still, I still think, is this really going to work? Is this, you know, can we really pull this off? I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Paul Farmer, co-founder of Partners in Health. We'll hear more from Paul coming up. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Paul Farmer, the co-founder of Partners in Health, an organization that provides health care to the world's poorest communities. Paul has essentially created public health care systems in developing countries, providing free drugs to patients who have AIDS or multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. He spent his career trying to get policymakers and the general public to understand the link between poverty and disease, which he calls the twin epidemics. Just to give one a sense of how destitute these people were that you were serving, Tracy Kidder, there's a quote in his book where a 13-year-old comes uh, to you. She needed a spinal tap, uh, you, you determined, and she was screaming, crying. She said, it hurts, I'm hungry. And you said, can you believe it? Only in Haiti would a child cry out that she's hungry during a spinal tap. Do you remember that? I do. I, I'm, I'm glad he wrote that down because... I, you know, otherwise I probably would have forgotten it, but it was incredibly vivid. But then I get stunned like that every week that I'm, you know, in these places. Mm -hmm. I was in, I was in Rwanda in in March, and uh, we were rounding in the morning, and uh, you know, now I'm sort of, I'm the grandfather. I'm the oldest guy around there. I'm 46, but you know, I've been at this a long time. But by 10 o'clock in the morning, we'd see a see a guy who was bitten by a cobra, and two boys who should have been in school but weren't in school because they were poor, who mistook a landmine for a toy and picked it up. You know, it's just just stunning to think about what would happen to these people if they didn't have access to health care as a right, you know, as something other than a commodity to buy. I think a lot of people are more aware of what's happening, say, in Africa or even Haiti and the poorer parts of the world and how these diseases are not dissociable from poverty. I think uh, one of your Haitian patients said it best, which was giving people medicine for tuberculosis and not giving them food is like washing your hands and trying them in dirt. You know, I heard that several times from several patients. It would be so much easier if we could say, okay, we're going we're gonna to make sure patients with AIDS get antiretrovirals or, or uh, that you know, women get modern obstetric care. But it's just the beginning. You know? and it's hard enough to do the medical work, the public health work. But then you have to think about, you know, water and housing and land rights, land tenure and seed prices and fertilizer prices and fair markets and debt relief and just goes on and on. And, you know, but that's what we do. 
I'm curious about your personal life during those years when you were so focused on your medical education, but also building this organization in, in Haiti. Did you ever feel like I'm missing out on you know a, a larger social life or um, missing things at home, or were you so steadfast that that didn't even come up? Well, I, I you know sure it's hard to you know do this work and to travel so much, but I feel that other people are missing out on social life. Mm-hmm. They're the ones missing out. This is what social life, the social world is like. You know, it's a world of rich and poor, of people dying of malaria when there are treatments right nearby. You know, of millions of people with AIDS and tuberculosis you know, who don't ever get the the drugs. That's what social life is to me, I've got to say. I'm not, I don't say that in a defensive way. You know, mm-hmm. people should do what they want, but I think the work that we're doing gives us great meaning in our lives. You know, my, my I'm very proud of my daughter, who's not even nine, uh, but she, you know, raises money for the pediatric pavilion in Rwanda, and uh, and she likes working there and being there. Her Her interest in this work is genuine. Today, you're wearing a really nice suit. In the book that Tracy Kidder wrote, he said that when you went out to start raising money, you had one suit, and it was a black suit. And you really liked that suit because you could write prescriptions and you know wipe the ink on your suit and travel then to Russia for 10 hours, and the suit still looked like it was in top shape when you got there. <laughs> it's still it's an indestructible suit. <laughs> and by the way, your wallet was a plastic bag. Where does this frugality of yours come from? Oh, I'm not really, I'm not frugal, Jessica. I just, um, I'm just, you know, you get focused on on this work and uh, you know other things somehow seem less important you know you're, you're around people who are, are you know dying for just lack of food and my response is not to say well I should not have food you know? and I've never been I hope I've never been sanctimonious like that or scrupulous but it does put you know creature comforts out of out of one's mind sometimes but I, I don't think I'm, I'm frugal in that way. But you did have a kind of a frugal upbringing. And you were born in North Adams, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires, and your family moved to Alabama. And you spent most of your earlier life in Alabama and Florida. That's right. You lived in a bus. How did you go about living in a bus? Well, I had no say in the matter since I was about nine. <laughs> uh, but we lived in... It's the funny thing about it is it was, it was actually a bus that had been used to screen people for tuberculosis. My father just built all these bunks inside, and we just we lived in it. And uh, you know, you get used to anything as a kid. There was a story that one day you went to school in in a car, the staff car, the staff yeah. car, and you said, "Dad, please don't drop me off in front of school." I'm embarrassed. I didn't say that. It wasn't just me. It was all six of us. One of because you, yeah, there were six siblings, and your dad pulled up to the front of the school. Well, you tell the story. My father uh, did not cotton to pretense and he had these ridiculous cars I, w- he bought this car from the government you know the government sells off its surplus and you can bid you, it's called a sealed bid and you bid on it and my father bid $288 for that car remember it had said US property of the US Army on the side and he just took a spray paint can and spray painted it and uh, of course we were mortified that he would drop us off you know near the school in that car and uh, when someone, I, I don't know, maybe it was me, but I don't think it was me. Someone made the mistake of saying, don't drop us off into the school. And he actually drove into the bus lane where it says buses only and honking the horn and said, that'll, that'll teach you. Did you think your dad was strange at all? No, I didn't, I didn't, no, no, I didn't think he was strange. He was obviously uh, uh, different from other people's fathers. Um, you know, I didn't know anyone else who lived in a bus. 
but uh, strange, no. I thought he was really smart and remarkable and interesting, and and uh, you know he taught us all a lot. And uh, so now I'm very grateful to him. Also, uh, you're quite precocious, and there's a great story about you. When you were 11 years old, you read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you went to the library and said, "Can I? Can you please give me something else like this?" And they gave you other, you know, mystery and adventure books. And you came back. You said, "No, no, no. This is not what I'm looking for." And at 11 years old, you were given War and Peace, and you came back and you said, "This is, this is just like Lord of the Rings." Well, it is. You have to admit. <laughs> How does 11 year old know that, though? I don't know. I don't know. I. I uh, I, I, I'm very lucky that uh, I had that love of reading, which a lot of my siblings had. You know, we were stuck in the bus or the boat, not a lot to do, and my parents, I mean, we, they didn't really like us to go far away, and, and so we, we all read a lot. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Paul Farmer, the co-founder of Partners in Health, an organization that strives to alleviate disease and poverty among the world's poorest populations. Paul got Partners in Health off the ground while he was a student at Harvard Medical School in the 1980s. Going back to Partners in Health, how did you go from a one-off clinic in Haiti to now an international organization with a presence in places like Mexico and Rwanda and even Boston, Massachusetts? Well, it grew sort of organically for a long time. We went from um, Haiti to to Peru, for example, I said organically. What does that mean? Well, we, we started in 1988, I think, a very good tuberculosis control program in Haiti, which is focused on community health workers, making sure they could visit the patients. Um, because although many of us doctors are honored to make four-hour treks to see patients, you, you can't run a program that way. You have to get lots of people doing that. And when we developed this expertise, we... Uh, found ourselves in the middle of a major epidemic of drug-resistant tuberculosis in Peru. We had personal connections to Peru. Uh, we'd promised that we would work there. And then that dragged us to Siberia, where we found out there was an even more troubling epidemic of drug-resistant tuberculosis there, largely in the prisons. And uh, the, the way we got to Boston was we started having these very good outcomes with tuberculosis and, and later AIDS. And, you know, you work in a Harvard teaching hospital and someone rolls in the door to the emergency room, they're sick because they're not really taking their medicines for AIDS or tuberculosis. And they weren't doing well. And so we started asking questions, why aren't they doing well right here in the shadows of, you know, Boston's biggest teaching hospitals? The answer was, again, social problems. They were different social problems. And hey, they weren't, you know, hunger, but they may have been domestic violence, housing instability, don't speak English as a first language, you know, uh, insurance problems, uh, addiction to drugs or alcohol. So we took the same model from Haiti and brought it to Boston. You talk about bringing a tuberculosis model to Russia, but there's another detail in there, which is you went to George Soros, the Open Society, and said, will you please fund our project in Peru? And they said, well, actually, our attention right now is in Russia. And you wrote a letter to George Soros and said, actually, I think you're going about it the wrong way. And you told him about this multi-drug resistant approach. And he invited you to his office the next day and uh, decided to or asked you to lead the project in Russia. It's the basics of the story. That's right. So in, in essence, they said, no, we can't help you in Peru, but you can help us in Russia. But it's very compelling. You know, they were doing very good work and with, you know, needed some tinkering uh, on the clinical side. And uh, just one figure, about a quarter of all people in the prison system 
with tuberculosis were dying when we started the project. And that's terrible. You know, it should be none. And 24% were dying. And when we introduced this new model in the, in the uh, prison system, the death rate went to zero in one year. I want to go back to Haiti for, for a minute. When you were trying to get uh, resources for your patients, you were going back and forth between Haiti and Harvard Medical School. I don't know how many Harvard Med students go to Haiti in their spare time and then come back and ace their exams. That was, must have been a challenging time for you. Y- you took some resources from Harvard Med School to, uh, to help the clinic in Haiti. You know, for instance, a microscope uh, ended up in a Haitian clinic and some drugs. In fact, I think it was $92,000 worth of drugs that ended up in Haiti. Well, Tom White paid for those eventually. <laughs> and by the way, it's ironic because Harvard Med loved you and you're a tenured professor there now. But how did you get away with that stuff? Well, you know, the ethics of, oh, well, I'm, I, I should plead the fifth, you know, <laughs> but um, the ethics of distributive justice are really was what, what was on my mind, you know. You know, to go from Harvard to Haiti for years and years and years, to go to places where there's so many resources sort of stacked up in one area for medicine, you know, and to go, and you're there in 12, 12 hours. You know, you, you're from the Brigham to the squatter settlement. It's about 12 hours. And, Two hours and from Miami. Even less. And a lot of that 12 hours, of course, is in vehicles, in Jeeps or, or a car. To me, the big ethical question, let me leave aside my youthful peccadilloes, the the, the chief ethical problem here is the ethics of poverty. You know, to, to claim, for example, that the United States is unrelated to Haiti is a nonsense. You know, J- the John Adams, in his history of the United States, said that we wouldn't even have the United States as it is, is today if not for Haiti because of the Louisiana Purchase, which wouldn't have happened because, in, unless the Haitian Revolution occurred. And, you know, and it goes on and on. That's the late, you know, 18th, early 19th century. And it just the connections got even tighter and tighter. I mean, we we occupied Haiti militarily for 20 years in the 20th century, and so to me, once I'd been in Haiti for a year, it stopped seeming vivid and different, and started seeming more connected to my country. And even to put it more baldly, affluence in one place seemed much more connected to poverty in another than I ever knew, and that to me was the big ethical issue: is how can we move resources rapidly to those who need them. And, uh, you know, that's how Haitians see things as well. And I think they're right. Was that a a decent answer to your provocative (laughs) question about the missing microscope? I think the the comment, uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, is perfectly suited to this case of taking drugs from the medical school and Well, you know, we, we did feel too, and still feel to this day, that we'd like to permit institutions like Harvard to make a significant contribution to this work. But you can't do it just by creating experts. You have to move resources. And of course, universities and, and, and major teaching hospitals are not very nimble institutions. And it's not entirely popular, as you can imagine. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Paul Farmer, the co-founder of Partners in Health, an organization that strives to alleviate disease and poverty among the world's poorest populations. Paul got Partners in Health off the ground while he was a student at Harvard Medical School in the 1980s. So how much time are you spending out there talking to the public, talking to investors, and educating them rather than, you know, in the field uh, in, in Conj, Haiti, for example? Well, you know, I like the way you said investors, and I didn't a few years ago. But I finally understand that notion. Mm-hmm. When I see so much shoddy philanthropy 
and mediocre healthcare in the poor world, including that which is connected to uh, people from the United States and Europe, they're also not doing a great job. You know, philanthropists are going to give away money, mm-hmm. and that's what they do. And I'd rather they give it to this kind of work. I, I could say us, but I'll just say this kind of work, which is very lean in terms of the money being spent in the first world and very lean on, on you know, spending a lot of money in management. And how much time am I doing that? A lot. Ten years ago, I would have just been kind of annoyed by having to do that sort of thing so much, but I'm not now. I, I really see it as the, the right thing to do. We talk about how it's it might be easier for you now to raise money from investors mm-hmm. uh, because you've proven yourself, you've gotten results. But in the early days, um, who were your other allies aside from Tom White? Were there other sort of monetary breakthroughs that you had? Yes, there were. Um, first of all, I mentioned uh, the support from churches. Um, and it was very interesting to me because it's not what I would have anticipated that some of our most uh, loyal support came from, from church groups. Uh, and we got a big break in the late 90s uh, when the Gates Foundation was developed. The Gates Foundation really res- did CPR on international health. I mean, it really resuscitated a field that was almost moribund and very gloomy and hangdog and whiny. And people were always saying, well, we'll never have enough money to do this. We'll never do that. We have to scale down our projects. We have to make it very simple and very cost-effective and all this jargon. Some of these projects, alas, are very complex and they're not easily dealt with without substantial investments of time and energy and money. And until the Gates Foundation came along, uh, I think things were looking fairly grim. How much did they give Partners in Health? Well, actually went to a consortium of groups through Harvard Medical School to Partners in Health, to the Ministry of Health of Peru, to the World Health Organization, to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, and to a group called the Task Force for Child Survival. And, but that coalition, and that was $44 million, huge grant. And wasn't it, though, a last-minute coalition because you're all vying for yeah. support? And at the 11th hour, you decided, okay, well, if we're going to get this money, we need to cooperate. Well, that's true. And, uh, you know, um, Jim Kim was very involved, of course, in cobbling together this uh, uh, this coalition and their senior medical advisor, Bill Fage. You mentioned Jim uh, Jim Kim, who was your partner and co-founder of Partners in Health, yeah. and still is. It seems like he made you think big. Is that the case? That's fair. Jim has always had this wonderful ability to think big. In fact, before the Gates Foundation grant, I think you were going to ask for 2 to $4 million, and he said, well, why don't we ask for $45 million, just yeah. to give an example of his vision. And, you know, that sounds arbitrary, but what I was saying was, why don't we ask for funding for the patients we plan to take care of in this one area of, of northern Lima? And he said, no, we should scale this up nationally. And so it wasn't about, you know, asking for four versus 40. It was really about two different projects. And Jim wanted not only to scale it up nationally, but also to try and, you know, export it to an, or replicate it in another site. And all that came to pass. How large is Partners in Health now? You know, I, we had a board meeting, uh, Partners in Health board meeting, and uh, someone on, on the, in the senior staff at PIH did a head count. How many people work for Partners in Health? And it was 4,000 people. Only 60 of them in Boston, and the rest of them in, in the poor world where we're also concerned to create jobs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a small team uh, 20 years ago. 
and all the people who labored so hard to get this off the ground are still working on this project. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jessica, for having me. My guest has been Paul Farmer, co-founder of Partners in Health. Coming up, we'll meet Israel Ganot, the co-founder of Gazelle, a company that resells used electronic equipment. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.